right. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another Serious Angler podcast. As always, I'm your host, Bailey Eichbrett, and joined with me is the captain, Mr. Andy Full. What's going on, buddy? You know, just uh, packing to get ready to leave tomorrow to head to Greenville. I'm sure you're pretty much in the same boat. I haven't even started packing yet. No, I've been working literally up until like 20 minutes ago because yeah. uh, the editing for episode two, Chasing Hardware, was is t- taking longer than expected. And I had a long work day. So I'm grinding out the, the last finishing touches on Chasing Hardware to post that for tomorrow night so that the folks can uh, see what the what remained of, of Toledo Bend for episode two. Hmm. But, no, I haven't even started packing yet. The suitcase has not even been brought out of the closet. No, nothing. My flight's tomorrow at noon. <laughs> It'll be fine. Oh, right. hey, that's nice. We leave about the same time then. I fly out of Buffalo at 1 o'clock. I mean, out of Rochester at 1. What time do you land? Uh, I land at like 5.30. And then uh, so- getting together with some people from work for drinks and dinner. Right. Nice. Yeah, we'll be in. I think we land in Greenville at 4.50. No, that's not bad. Yeah, so we uh we fly out of Rochester and our layover is Baltimore and it's like a forty five minute layover. So it's gonna be two quick hour and ten minute flights. Nice. That's not yeah. bad. Yeah, I mean New York to North Car or South Carolina is not bad by any means. Um Kylan Sutton down here is asking if he has episode two to look forward to tonight of Chasing Hardware, and that is not tonight. I'm actually gonna post that tomorrow <laughs> night. At 7 p.m. Eastern, so you guys have that to look forward to tomorrow night. Uh, getting everyone ready for Classic Day, day one of the Bassmaster Classic on Friday, which again, Andy and I will say, uh, if you guys are going to be there, holler at us. Andy will be all over the dang place. Um, I'll most likely be at either the Pier Fishing or Johnson Outdoors booth for, I guess, for folks who may not know what that is. That's Berkeley, Abu Garcia, and then Hummingbird, Minkota. That's where you can find my dumb, ugly face if you want to say hello. But, just punch it. No, I'm just yeah, kidding. yeah. Just punch it. Hey, what's going on, man? Let's <laughs> go up and slug. <laughs> but dude, uh, talking about uh, chasing hardware, episode two is there was a the biggest thing that hit that weekend of the tournament was a cold front, and that was really what sparked this. More honestly, I might have I might even be selfish with this topic for tonight. And uh, I always like to pick our guest brain as often as I possibly can. Uh, our good buddy, Mr. Caleb Bell, is going to join us here. We got him down in the queue. And uh, whenever I get, like, confused about something or I don't know my decision-making or so when I'm trying to reflect on something, I always like to give Caleb a ring because you can call a lot of great anglers and they'll give you really good insight, but Caleb is very unique and likes to think outside the box. Only this time, I didn't call him on my way home. I more thought of, like, Hmm, this might make for a great episode topic. So instead of making it a phone call, let's get him on a show. And I think without further ado, we'll bring him on here. Mr. Caleb Bell, what's going on, buddy? Oh, what's up? Is it warm in Tennessee yet? It is extremely warm. Like that's a weird thing. So we've had we had a cold front last week. Highs were in the 40s, lows in the 20s, which is pretty cold for us this time of year. And now like this morning, it was maybe 35 degrees, and I bet it got up 65, 66 today. It'll be nearly 70 tomorrow, and it'll be that cold. In this up. I, I hate it when the weather does that because it puts them in like the biggest funk ever. Oh, I yeah. find, like, 
when you come out of a cold front, as we kind of prelude here, I almost like the weather to almost stabilize and slowly, gradually rise. Exactly. Going on these huge waves because it just messes them up. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, I I feel for you right now. Yeah. <laughs> and the whole lake right now is fishing terrible because of that. I personally, I really like the most brutal cold front that I can get, like, really cold weather coming in, especially if you can have it sustained for like three or four days. It's mm-hmm. like a deal um, for catching big fish. And Bailey knows like, that's what I like to target. Like, you know, I can go out on days like today and a lot of times catch numbers of fish, but it can be really hard to, to I guess, focus on the really big ones. Mm-hmm. And they're cutting through bites instead of just focusing on hunting a giant. We're still looking at like eight inches of ice. So I don't feel bad for you in the slightest. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although I think that's going to go pretty quick up here. Um, when we're down in Greenville, I believe the forecast is Saturday is going to be like 65 here and we're supposed mm-hmm. to get like an inch and a half of rain. Yeah. So that's going to cut the ice super quick. Make and then easier. 40s and sun the following week. It's The ice season's pretty much done after this weekend, I would think. I don't think so. Man. I'm looking at the forecast right now and I see nine degrees Friday night. And it's going to be a high of 48 this weekend. But Sunday, it does indeed rain all day. It gets in the 60s, but then it's right back down to the mid-20s uh, for all of next week. And it gets some in the mid-40s uh, mid a little bit during the day. I only saw one day in the 20s. I think I think we got another two weeks at least. I'm but curious. We'll see. Okay. we'll see. When it comes to ice, tell me this. When you guys have like a warm rain, does that what does that do to the ice? Because I know it's sitting. you got all this warm water <laughs> sitting on top of this huge thick layer of ice the ice is like insulating the cold water below does it just become like a big slush puppy on top and get like soft or weird yeah it does if you have a lot of snowpack if you have a hard black ice and you get a lot of rain on top and the sun starts cooking it it almost causes the ice like the uv rays will start cutting like slits in the ice and it drains through it it makes the ice honeycomb and super (laughs) unstable do you get a new pooch? Yeah, we've got a grand or great Pyrenees. She oh pushed the door open. She wanted to say, "Hey, <laughs> hey Dad, what are you doing?" Oh my gosh, <laughs> that thing's adorable, dude. That thing is so. I think she's three months old now, and she's already up to like fifty-three pounds. Oh my god, they grow dude, for like crazy. three years, so she'll be like a, she'll probably be a hundred and twenty-pound dog. Soon, dude, she'll my- be- Taking her spot in the bed. Sorry, Bailey. Didn't mean to cut Sorry, you off. <laughs> that dog, she was squishing me all last night. <laughs> I uh, my grandparents used to have two of those when I was like really little, and yeah. they would like my grandfather made like a makeshift saddle for me as a kid to like ride yeah. a dog around the house. That's so funny because <laughs> it was so massive. It was practically a horse. Yeah, they're they're really cool. So the Great Pyrenees, they actually used them in World War II to uh, haul artillery, like huge mm-hmm. pieces of artillery over the mountains. Um, and so that that's what they're they're like uh, a really strong dog as far as like the load that they can carry and stuff like that, and they can carry it for a really long time. So it's kind of unique breed, you know. They're a guardian dog, is why we got them for our livestock and stuff out there. So are you saying that if your truck breaks down, your dog will drag your boat to the ranch? That's what I'm hoping. If I can just, I, love I don't it. know how I'm going to hook the ball up or anything. <laughs> I feel like the kayak might be a better option. Maybe my ten foot John boat. I'm sure I could strap that to me to her, though. She could probably pull me out. 
Andy, for the way you like to fish sometimes up here in New York for the largemouth uh, lakes that we go to, you would love Caleb's boat. Yes, it is, sure. It's awesome. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, ever since I, the first time I was in Caleb's boat, yeah. I have ever since just been obsessed with little aluminum John boats. Oh, yeah. one ever since. oh they're incredible. Like you I can just do you, so Caleb. much stuff with them. Yeah, yeah exactly. so I, I can get right up there. And today, like as a good example, I was throwing <laughs> a wiggle wart and I threw that thing right up in a tree, right up against a bluff wall. And I just put my boat in there, popped the, the trolling motor up when I got close, let the boat bump into it, got up there, did my thing. Like most guys would be trying to fight the trolling motor to keep their, you know, their fiberglass just, away from the rock there. It's a tool. I just crashed it into everything. Bailey's yeah. a witness. So, slamming yeah. <laughs> speed. Yeah. yeah. Just whatever it is, it's bouncing off of it. My boat has so many nicks and gauges out of like the top coat. It's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Literally. It's a tool. It's meant to be abused. Yeah, you gotta, get, I mean, you gotta get to where those fish are, right? Like, right. Exactly. Play around. Exactly. Well, knowing us three, before we get off on a 30-minute tangent about 20 other things oh, besides, yeah, yeah, exactly. besides tonight's topic. <laughs> yeah. uh, tonight we're talking we're talking cold fronts, which every angler it's a I think it's a love-hate relationship because you love it when it's coming, but then for the duration that it's there. And the entire day after it sucks because it puts those fish in a funk. Um, but we're going to get into kind of everything about cold fronts tonight, like how to approach it when you know it's coming and then how to, I guess, strategically plan, especially if it's a tournament day, when it's there, how to adjust, making a plan for when it hits to be yeah. able to adjust to it when those fish become a little bit more finicky. Yeah. Um, so I guess first thing I kind of want to throw out there is, do you guys think there's a season where cold fronts are less effective in terms of like the damage that they do to the fish? If that makes sense. Like is fall yeah. better for cold fronts is spring more damaging for cold fronts. I think anytime sense. you get during like the warmer months, um, especially once you get post spawn, I don't think it really affects the fish at all. You know, a lot of fish in most lakes are kind of pulling um, to a little bit deeper water anyway. And you know, that the cold front itself is such a small incremental change. It doesn't really change the water temperature or anything in a negative way. Whenever you're talking like for us, probably June through September, there's no cold front that's going to make a difference because we just don't have those kind of swings where it does make a difference. Really. I feel like in the winter time going into the pre-spawn definitely affects the fish more. Um, when our fish are up there in the fall, what's happening is the water's cooling down. You're not trying to warm water back up, right? Mm -hmm. So when, you, when you're coming out of the winter, the water is cold and you're trying to warm it back up. So when you get a cold front, it can bump that timeline back uh, a lot more than in the fall when it's already trying to dip down anyway. The water's still 70 degrees, you know, or 65 degrees. You get a cold front, it might drop it to 62 or something. That doesn't seem to affect the fish. Most of our fish, you know, in the fall time, they're shallow, they're on flats, they're in grass, especially the fish in the grass match. You know, I really like, especially really late for us, November, December, some of the best frogging on chick, and it'll be 28 degrees in the morning, and it's warming up to 45, and the water's still 55 degrees or 50 degrees, and you're getting some of the most ferocious frog and buzzbait blowups of your life on these. They got to eat. They know it's coming. November this year or last year, I should say. 
on a yeah. budget. And I'll, I'll second that saying, like, I think that cold fronts are best in the fall. Like once you get yeah. that, at least for, you know, speaking from us up here, when you get that first cold front, it sucks. Like if, especially yeah. in New York, you're like, does a fish exist, which is probably like the one weekend yeah. or one the last weekend of September. It's always the worst. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like the only time you'll ever say in the North, like do fish exist up here because you can't catch anything. Like we've had tournaments, some of the, some amazing lakes where it's super easy to go catch five. And like, we've had tournaments where like four fish or three fish will get you in the top five. Like it'll get you paid. Exactly. Um, exactly. Where, but then after that, I think every cold front, major cold front coming through until winter, it, it makes those fish go absolutely insane. They go bonkers. Like the There's, best days you'll yeah. ever have. Yeah, exactly. There's a, an urgency to the way that they eat. And that happens with us in the, our winter time too, because it's <laughs> we're not iced over. So when we get a cold front, a lot of times it's actually getting the water to where I like it. Um, you know, the colder the water is, it, it, if you can still catch fish, you know what I'm saying? Like, to me, some of my best days I've ever had winter fishing, early pre-spawn fishing, I've been in water temps that are anywhere from 41 to 39. Um, and there's something, I don't, I think what happens is it, you know, like scientifically, it affects the fish's vision, for one, it affects the way, you know, the lateral line works. And then there's also this urgency to feed. So I think that you're more apt to fool a fish that you couldn't fool um, in other circumstances. That's when you see and you notice that. So we saw that happen last year at in Texas during that cold front, you know, record setting fish all over the place in different lakes. We saw it again <laughs> this year in Texas. Mm -hmm. uh, two years ago, we saw it in Florida with record setting cold fronts over there. There's something special. And I've told all my buddies this, if I had, if I won the lottery tomorrow, I would literally chase cold fronts all over the U S to these kind of lakes to go catch giant fish, because that's my favorite way to catch them is in historic cold front. Like, you know, something that completely gets the, the fish out of the norm there, but there's mm -hmm. something that it's timing. So you guys probably see the same thing that we see up here. So my favorite time, if, if I'm wintertime here, if I had to pick like the day, if it, you know, cold front fishing is when it's coming in snow, sleet, like 20 mile an hour winds. I want to be on the water that day during the pressure drop as the cold front's pushing in. You'll get insane bites. I had one uh, earlier this uh, past year. It was actually in January. Um, Actually, it was this year. It was in January. Um, I was fishing on in Sail Creek. We had a bunch of sleet and snow come in. I was standing like in a slush, you know, puddle in the bottom of my boat, and I caught about sixty bass on a lipless crank out in the middle of a flat in Sail Creek. And I had like, 26, 28 pounds, something like that. I mean, it's just every cast. I found them loaded up out there, and they were just absolutely crushing a lipless crank in like ten foot of water. And those are really difficult fish to catch right there. Mm -hmm. But I, that's the deal. It's like you time it then, and then the next day is usually pretty tough. Like at that point, I'm slowing down. I'm usually going to drag, like I'll drag a Carolina rig. I'll flip a jig. Or, or if I'm still trying to get a reaction bite, like I'll take my lipless. Uh, that's one of my favorite ones, or a blade bait, and I'm working it really slow. Sometimes I'll actually throw that thing out there, and I'll drag it and stop it drag it and stop it. You just want it to tick those shells as it's going down through there. Or the other thing that I saw Nathan commented down there, 
the the flip in the trap there. We call it flipping a trap where you're literally just popping it just enough to make that thing roll over. You want to it's just like a shaky head. You want to roll on its side in the same spot and those fish will come down and you just feel it. And it's usually a big one to have it just all the way inhaled when it happens like that. And hmm. I think Ben posted something like that a while ago of you too. I think you were at up north, right? Where yeah. Like basically you're you're slack lining, like you're just knocking slack in your yeah. line. You're, yeah, you, you throw that thing out there where you already know a group of fish is, and you're you just you're popping that slack just barely enough to get that trap to do that. And you do it with a blade bait too, and it's absolutely hammers them. Yeah, you know that next day after the cold front, and then after that, it seems like if you have that sustain. It's usually a day or two for us. It's pretty tough, and then that day after that, if it keeps that cold front temp, it's lights out from then on as as long as it wants to stay cold you know cold it's freaking dynamite yeah i was about to say like that third day after a cold front always seems to be like the magic day especially if it's stable cold yeah it's got to be stable it can't be warming back up that actually i feel like if it's quickly warming when you have like these springtime deals when it's quickly warming and cooling that just gets them all i don't even know like they just don't eat you don't know what's going to happen. You could go out there and smash them, or it could just be like today. Like I, I didn't catch a bass in like two and a half hours out there today. Yeah, I think when like this time of year, if it's warm, you have to have some type like it's a warm front, but there's essentially another cold front coming behind it. You have to have wind. You have to have clouds. You have to have miserable weather for them to fire. If it's warm and sunny, yeah. it's like the worst fishing conditions you can have after yeah. a really cold front. I've had good days for numbers like that. You'll find them grouped up, you know, especially late afternoon. But as far as size, like, you I, I can't stand that when you get those conditions because it's kind of like they do in the fall here where it's just every size fish groups together. Mm-hmm. You're weeding through fish. So you get on a school and you're catching two pounders. You don't know if there's a 10 pounder sitting there. Whereas when it's a cold front situation, usually they're more segregated. So if you catch a six, chances are there's another six to eight sitting there. Mm-hmm. If you get two, it's probably going to be a bunch of twos and threes sitting there. Hmm. So that's when you break out your gizzard chat, right? Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's not the only way to fish this lake anymore. I went down to Nickajack for just a couple hours last week and Caught a bunch of big smallmouth cranking. I had like 10 keepers, which Fun. keeper here is 18 inches, like three plus pounds. And I think the biggest one was like four and a half. They were just crushing the BT6 down there. That's, That's awesome. crazy. Down in Tennessee, an 18 inch is three and a half pounds. Yeah. On Lake Erie and Buffalo, an 18 inch is probably close to five. Yeah. <laughs> like it's just ridiculous. I caught one, uh, it was like 16 and a half. That was five pounds on uh, Hubbard Lake with. Uh, yeah. No, it was like 17 and something. Gobi eaters are a different beast. Before I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> that was my first fish on one of y'all's little hair jigs too. Like this, you know, like slow yeah. hair jig. It was freaking cool. <laughs> I wonder how I chase it down. That's a fat yeah. fish. <laughs> it was so, ridiculous. Yeah. Well, Andy, in terms of like Northern Great Lakes smallmouth, sure. you know, pertaining to that same question of, is there a season that's more difficult than the rest when it comes to cold fronts? Is there one that comes to mind? Um, smallmouth are an entirely different animal. And the hard part with cold fronts, I actually don't like them in the middle of summer. Um, but it's that day after the cold front. If 
that day that cold front is coming in, usually you can't get out on the water anyways because you have four to five footers. Yeah. So um, that makes it pretty miserable. And then in the fall, the cold fronts change a little bit for whatever reason. In October, when the cold front starts to come in, like that day that it's going to arrive in the morning, we'll have slick, calm weather right before it hits, and you can usually catch them then. But summertime, I think, is when I least like the cold fronts the most. Springtime, it doesn't seem to affect the smallies that much. That's that's really interesting. I didn't even think about that aspect, like y'all's big water situation, yeah. because it doesn't matter if you guys have a north or a south wind. If you have the right wind, it's going to kick up huge waves yeah. and make it unfishable. For us, on Chickamauga, Gunnersville, Watts Bar, Nickajack, you notice the Tennessee River runs north to south. And so, like, it, until you get to Kentucky Lake. Um, but the current runs basically from north to south down through there. So when we have a cold front, it can actually be a lot easier to fish main lake because the wind is kicking with the current. So when it, when that happens, it's amazing. You'll have like a, you can have a 20, 25 mile an hour north wind and the waves are itty bitty because they're rolling with that current after that cold front. Right. But if it kicks out of the south, it like stacks. Yeah, it stacks up huge waves, and it'll blow out all the flats and main lake stuff. You'll end up having to fish in the creeks and, and things. Mm-hmm. like It'll just trash everything and make it super muddy. And, you know, it's, it's about impossible to sit in a, on a four-foot, you know, flat and throw a trap when you have three-and-a-half-foot waves because your boat and trolling motor is yeah. smashing into the ground the whole time. Be very quiet, guys. So, like, some <laughs> of the best lakes I've had, like some of my main lake um, trapping stuff, has actually been post-cold front, the, even the, the first and second day. And I think it's mainly just because I can get on it and it's not blown out. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. like... Yeah, we have a weird dynamic with, with wind up here. It's like the Great Lakes, anything north or south, then you should be okay to fish whatever yeah. bank obviously that wind is coming from yeah. anything on an eerie east wise you're fine but east wind sucks because it's basically what you just said it's because there's that natural great lake current where yeah eerie flows into niagara any that wind it just you can't it's it's hard to drift is basically what i'm getting at yeah but like any north or south wind sucks for us you can go on the great lakes and you're fine but that sucks for us in our finger lakes because our finger lakes run north to south so it's like if it's blowing 20 out of the south I mean, you're not fishing the north end of that lake because you, no. yeah. it's they get huge too. Like, they're, and that, they're that's one scary. thing with cold fronts is playing your odds, you know. So, so I do that here a lot of times, um, and it, it kind of works out. So, if you're on any kind of, if you're on a, a natural lake, if you're on a reservoir, if you're on like the Tennessee River chain, when you have cold fronts coming in, especially in the spring, late winter time, you can really. Um, key in on bikes that are on the north side of a flat or a north facing pocket where that wind is not kicking into it. If you get one that's south facing, then the wind, north wind is pushing cold water and cold current into there. Whereas if it's against it, it's not. And so that water will stay really warm. And a lot of times um, that bite will stay pretty much the same in there. So you can kind of play your odds as far as, you know, picking different parts of the lake to run different patterns on and, uh, and stay in clean water for one, or you can stay in warmer water. You can kind of pick and choose what you're doing, but any lake that you see, if you're, you have a cold front coming in with some major wind, you know, if it's a warm front, 
it's probably going to push bait and stuff and feeding fish into the area. If it's a cold front, it might just actually push that cold water into there and force those fish out of there. Um, so a lot of times I'll actually run from the wind in that situation, but it just depends. Like you, you guys know, you can't just read Bassmaster magazine on this. You always <laughs> gotta keep fish honest. Mm -hmm. you know, right now these fish on chick, you know, we just had a huge warm rain. Like the water tent went from, 45 or so and it's like i found water today that's 54 55 degrees it, and it rose to summer pool like just a little past summer pool like great current running bait everywhere and the fish instead of pulling up and getting in cover and getting you know right up in that stuff they stayed off and they didn't stay off like the old bank line they actually stayed off like the old bank line plus what it is winter pool so all these fish are just sitting where they were before the water came up eight feet in this rain, like out here in these little ditches and stuff where they shouldn't even be right now. It just, it makes no sense where they're yeah. at. Right I think what's happening there is you hit the day where the surface temp is still really warm because you had the flooding and mm. they're staying in the water temp of what they were acclimated to. So as it starts to warm that eight feet down, you'll start to yeah. see those fish creep up. That's what I thought too, and it might be that because we've had some cold mornings and stuff. But the bait, you know, usually the bait will stay with the fish out there. When you see them stay on that outside shoreline, for us, usually the bait will stay there too. And like the trash fish, like all the bait and the trash fish are up, like where they should be on all these spots. But the fish stay there, and it's been like this for about four or five days now. We've had consistent, really warm temperatures, but pretty cold temperatures overnight. And like every other year that I've had this happen, I live for it. And I've got like, you know, 20 spots on the lake I can go smash fish on. And I haven't been able to go except for today. And But I've had buddies out there fishing that stuff. And I mean, it just has not popped. I don't know what the heck is going on with those fish. It's got to... Only thing of because of the current, it's got to be a water displacement deal. Like there's yeah. got to be some type of water variable. The shad and the trash fish will obviously come first. Did they just start showing up shallow today, or were they there for? No, four they've or five been that way for from what I've heard for like four or five days, which that's is weird. Crazy. And that's the thing with a current oriented fishery, like on the low end, what you're talking about happens a lot, or in creeks. But usually main lake, especially when the water comes up, that current is pushing over those flats. So it stays yeah. the same temperature. Like the water column, there's no like, uh, what do you call that? that happens in the summertime. There's no split, no thermocline. Like it's literally, it all stays the same temperature out there, main lake. And all of that stuff on the flats gets the same temperature too, because that water is cascading over top of it. And so usually the fish just move at will to the easiest current break to ambush shad but they haven't done that they've stayed like away from the bait i don't it's just weird i've, yeah. I've it's just like my whole life and i've never seen the fish do exactly what they're doing at this moment i'm not really sure why that is weird when you when you see a cold front come in like does it affect the air the typical areas that you know would like this time of year that would be popping off will it kind of restrict you to go to certain areas or like, will that kind of change your strategy when you see that, cold no. front, you know, it's going to hit that day. Like, Not at all. So I'm a big proponent. So when we get into what I call like early pre-spawn into pre-spawn, so anywhere from like beginning of February to now, 
those fish, it's like a biological shift. Like they decide it's time to move shallow and to get around those spawning areas. And there's nothing that changes that. Like I've, I've literally gone out there and it's 20 degrees. The water temp's 39 degrees. And I'm sitting there throwing into inches of water and catching fish out of like 12 inches of water, burning a trap as fast as you can do. Hmm. It's like once they decide to commit, they don't go. They don't slide out. They don't do anything. They stay in that general area. Um, so hmm. fish will be there, but you have to change your approach depending on where you're at in that cold front thing. You know that as it's coming in, whatever you want to do, power fishing, you know, throwing traps, throwing uh, square bills, throwing swim baits, you know, depending on the water clarity, big swim baits and stuff, even when it's ultra, ultra cold water temperatures. I don't think water temperatures, like a lot of people put a whole lot of stock in water temps, but to me, that hasn't been a big deal for me at all. Like yeah. I go where I think the fish should be in their little, little migration and then I try to catch them. I think water temps mean more on stagnant waters than they do yeah. by current driven waters. Exactly. Exactly. Cur- current driven fish have a higher metabolism. So they're more apt to eat when the water temp is cooler. Yeah. So that I, would I, be, I mean, that that's just what I've seen on the Tennessee river. Like when they commit, it doesn't matter how far it drops after that, they're going to be there. Now you have to change your approach, you know? So if you're, the you know as that's coming in you can fish however you want that next day though i mean sometimes i'll get sneaky with that like i'll throw you know you get up on that same flat and four foot of water six foot of water but instead of throwing a trap and burning it like you're either barely moving it or you're throwing like a a kitek you know like a 2.8 kitek or you're throwing a grub or you know popping a tube that's one of the things i really like to do is kind of like crack a tube Mm-hmm. in those same areas where I was catching fish on the lipless if I'm like in that second or third day. And then after that, it pretty much goes back to normal again. But it does, if those fish have committed to that like sub three foot of water, that cold front usually will punch them in the mouth. Unless you can find, at that point, a lot of times I'll abandon those fish and I'll find fish that are main lake in the river because that water stays extremely stable. Like it could be ultra, ultra, ultra cold, and the whole lake can freeze up, but the main river channel will not. It'll stay like between 45 and 43 degrees yeah. in the wintertime. So that stuff's ultra stable. You can get out there on current breaks and find schooled fish like that and, and catch them. Hydroelectric dams are awesome. Yeah. Because they always produce warm water. Yeah. Almost, exactly. every hydroelectric, almost every hydroelectric dam with the generators it pumps out warmer water than normal the only time you don't really see it is in the summertime because the water is so stable in the same Timothy, time uh, or tim there did the same asked that same question you know river systems are completely different yeah. and that's why i really like um, tail races right below the dam and the actual upper end of a river system in the winter time because it is ultra stable and one thing that you find when, you, when you're on any kind of Tennessee River Lake or any river system like that, as you get towards the dam, you, the lake becomes more like a river system. And it, it narrows down. You have steeper drops on the channel walls. And what happens is all those backwaters where those fish could get in the summertime, they can't get there anymore. Whereas if you go mid-lake or low end of the lake, it's really wide. Um, the current doesn't affect everything. There's huge main creeks there, like giant creeks, tributaries and stuff like that, that almost fish like their own lake. 
Whereas you can get up and those fish can spread out. You know, they can be on these flats. They can be on secondary channels. They can be back in this major creek. And so you've got the population of fish kind of diverse, you know, spread out into different patterns. Whereas if you go up to that river, all those fish got one spot they can be right on the channel edge. And that's where I took you, Bailey and Alex, and you could see that bite, how that, how those fish have to set up on those little creek mouths, how they have to set up on those edges like that. And you've got all these big fish stuck in one area. Yeah. I think one thing to remember too, I think it was Rick Clun that just basically said that current is a negating factor of all factors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Regardless yeah, of what it's, <laughs> yeah. it's like the common de facto. Like everything goes out the window when you current because it exactly. almost always stays the same. The fish yeah. don't leave very, move very far either. From no, season no. To season. They, they, you know, they stay in those breaks in that current, you know, and, and that's the thing. It's the same thing. I tell people a lot of guys struggle in the wintertime. I'm like, go fish the same stuff that you ledge fish in the summertime. That's where the fish will be. They're going to be out there right off of those little shell beds, right off the break. It's just that instead of there being eight foot of water on top of that spot, it's out of, you know, it's dry land and the fish are just right off that drop. Yeah. So like when you see that front's coming, are, and like obviously it's going to happen throughout the day when you're fishing do you yeah. plan for an adjustment of baits that you're going to throw at those fish or are you planning on maybe a change of area what do you usually approach when you see that that front's coming in we all know like we've all been if you if everyone's listening to this and the three of us obviously you know what we're talking about the cold fronts everyone has has felt a cold front hit because you can feel it in the air the pressures yeah. if completely different Obviously, the the surroundings around you are changing. Yeah. Um, when that when you're feeling that happen, and those fish are either starting to short strike or you're just not getting bit in general, you know, are you changing up what you're throwing, or are you going to go try a different area? Well, usually, so the way you describe that to begin with is like during that day as the cold front's coming in. Now, what I'll usually start out doing is I'm going to be idling. Um, this is not when a cold front's coming in. I don't feel like it's the time to be like running different points and trying to find fish stacked up or something like that. Fishing ultra shallow. What I like to do is I like to get around, you know, a group of fish, a lot of fish on a flat, you know, like Chester Frost, like these huge creek areas that have these flats that just have a giant population of fish in them. Or you can do that main river ledge thing where you have schools of fish down that ledge. But it's, it seems like to me um, that little bit deeper water, like I really like to target stuff that's in that magic zone on the Tennessee River, which is anywhere from 8 to 12 feet. Um, that's what I really like to target. And, and basically, as far as changing baits, I usually don't have to do much of that. Um, sometimes at the beginning of it, when you're actually the warmer part of it, which you wouldn't think so I have to finesse fish, but I spend a lot of time graphing. I'll figure out where the fish are grouped up. And a lot of times it's community holes, places that it's really hard to catch fish most of the time. But when that cold front's coming in and you know that fish are going to start biting, where do you want to be? You want to be where the most fish are, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So you get around those fish because you know they're going to kick at some point. So I'll get around there. I'll mark some schools. I'll figure out what looks like the best fish, you know, as far as size on my side scan and stuff. And then I'll just set up. And a lot of times I'm finesse fishing. And as soon as I feel that west or north wind start hitting me in the face and starts raining and gets nasty, the wind's kicking up, that's when I start getting aggressive. You know, usually I, 
there's cloud cover for us. We have some kind of precipitation going on. So I'm using, I guess, really solid or bold colors. You know, it's not, I get away from my transparents and stuff like that. And I get really aggressive, you know, looking for reaction bites, whether it's speed cranking, you know, uh, yo-yo in a trap. And I mean, really ripping it and yo-yo in it and stuff like that. Or I'll pick up bigger swim baits, you know, and start, I just start power fishing because I know those fish are going to kick. And when they do, you've already got them located. You've got three or four areas where they're sitting on located. And usually when that's happening, those fish, you'll have this on these big flats and stuff. A lot of times these fish are just like y'all's fish are. They're like nomadic. They're moving around a lot, right? Well, when a cold front's coming in, it's like they pick a spot. And a lot of times they just sit there. Mm-hmm. So it's really nice. Like uh, like the other day when I caught all those fish, I literally stayed spot locked and caught a fish on every cast for an hour. I didn't move. I didn't even have to move. I was making the same cast over and over and over again. That's pretty, that's crazy. Cause like when I look at a cold front, I think of like, it's kind of, I think it's awesome personally, because it's basically the complete opposite of how I've always approached cold fronts. And that when you feel that cold front coming in, you're just power, power, power. Whereas like you're talking about finessing up to that cold front yeah. and then just drop the hammer on them with like yeah, just crazy right. aggressive. Whereas like, as soon as I feel that front hit and they start like, start to miss some of the baits, I go to finesse. See, like, yeah. that might be something I need to start experimenting with. Is That's what it. happens with our fish when that stuff is, when it's actually like the heat of it's coming in, you know, it's like you're in the moment, it's sleeting on you, it's raining, you know, you're sitting there spot locked and you got like a 20 mile an hour north wind hitting you in the face. That's when those fish kick for some reason. And they usually feed that entire afternoon, like when that's happening. Mm-hmm. It'll just be lights out. And anybody that's on the water that's around fish during that time will smash them. Um, it's just like, and it is, that's why I, I've really gone to to getting around community holes for that, because I feel like getting in those areas where everybody knows there's a bunch of big fish. It's like, I want to be around as many fish as I can get around, because if they're all going to start biting, it puts all the odds in my favor of not only catch a bunch of fish, but have a shot at the right fish. Right. So when, when you're, when you're feeling that happen, those fish are kicking and the bite's just crazy, but you feel it starting to slope off and it's starting to die. Yeah. What, uh, beyond the fact of what the fish are telling you, are there any other kind of keys or signs that you're looking for to start adjusting, whether it's either bait so, selection or you should, maybe they might be moving. Uh, what do you think? A lot of times for me, it's like approach. Um, it, it is my presentation there. If, if I'm, and, and typically for us, it's not that the fish have stopped biting because usually it is too dark, you know, at that point, like they're going to feed up until you want to stop catching them. Basically, usually in the winter time, it's like, they'll just randomly stop biting. Like all the fish will stop biting at like four or five o'clock, like 30 minutes before dark. I don't know what it is, but like, you won't see bait activity, nothing. It's all gone. Um, but up until that point, it's going to happen. So if I'm just, you know, sitting on a spot like I was the other day and I'm catching them every cast, just ripping a trap as hard as I can, and then I make five casts in there and I don't catch something or I get bumped and I'm like, you know, what happened there? Probably what's happened is there was 40 fish sitting in there. I've caught 35 of them. And so what I'll do is I'll pick up something else. A lot of times for me, a follow-up bait, if I'm fishing, if I'm out there and I'm murdering fish on a trap, as soon as they stop biting that, I have a couple different things I do. One, I tie on a silent trap and I'll yo-yo that through there. A lot of times you get bit on that 
If you don't get bit in two casts, put it down and fire out your blade bait. Usually that Demiki Volt. I fire that thing out there. That's going to catch something regardless. Now, what happens with us is uh, a lot of times a white bass get in there with the bass. And so if I fire out there and I catch 10 white bass in a row, I'll put the, the vault down immediately because I don't like sifting through white bass and getting my, my hands all you know cut up. So what I'll do is I'll pick up that tube or grub and I'll pop that thing through there. And usually you can catch whatever's left in that school to catch. And then you move on to another one. Because remember at the beginning of the day, I spent my time, I did my homework and I've got three or four other schools in the immediate area lined up. So I'm going to troll over to them, fire those guys up and do the same thing. And a lot of times what you can do is you can actually repeat on three or four schools if they're smaller. You know, sometimes you look into a mega wad where there's like 70 fish sitting there and you're just going to sit there and catch them. See, that is something that I, me as an angler, I need to work on big time is willing to go cycle through six to eight different baits mm-hmm. on the same fish after you're making the same cast. Yeah. Like, I'm sitting there like I might throw one or two different things and then I'm going to move and just go look for something elsewhere. Yeah. As you said, most likely, you know, very good chance. Those fish are still there. Yeah. You just need to change the approach. Yeah. And sometimes you'll actually key on it. If you treat everything like your ledge fishing, you know, guys, ledge fishing, everyone knows it's like you got, you know, 10 key baits on the deck and you're going to fish those baits, right? On each school that you come across, you're going to fire them up. You're going to have follow-up baits and then you're going to have follow-up baits that are finesse baits beyond that to try to catch it maximize as many fish as you can out of the school it's the same thing but you got to do that because once you find a load of fish the chances are this time of year if you like stumbling down the bank or something and find another load of fish it's pretty slim so you want to maximize that and sometimes what will happen is you're catching them really good on a trap right and you're like oh man great i'm gonna throw a trap all day but when you throw in that school and you catch you know 10 three pounders on a trap you're like all right that was sweet then you crack a tube through there and you catch a six. You're like, oh, wait a second. And then you do that again on the next school and you catch your bigger fish on the tube. Well, then what do you start doing? You start rotating that as your initial bait. A lot of times it's a swim bait, you know, like I'll tie on a five inch uh, zoom swimmer or Bastrix or something. And I'll throw it as a follow-up bait. If I'm starting to get the big fish on that bait, it's going to be the first bait that I start throwing into school because I want to hook that big fish on that bait, right? It's a single hook. I got a really good chance of landing it. And you stand a lot less chance of spooking. If you've got a school of 30 fish sitting there and there's two over 10 in it, you got a lot better chance of catching those two 10 pounders. If that's the first fish that bites out of there and you don't have fish going crazy in there and moving around and potentially spooking, you know, following the bait to the boat and stuff like that. So to me, it's like you can, by changing up baits and presentations on each school, you can, actually narrow down and kind of find a pattern within a pattern so to speak and actually end up you know because there's that's the thing it's like once you have something i know i do the same thing you have something that's working good it's hard to put it down mm-hmm. yeah and that's one thing you know total sidebar but that live scope and forward-facing sonar has done when you talk <laughs> about like before even having forward-facing when you like yeah. bring a bait back to the boat and unbeknownst to you you bring that school majority of that school back to you and you'll fire back and you're like, huh, I'm not getting bit. Well, they're all still trying to get reset up because yeah. they followed your bait back in. We had no idea. It's, it's a hard thing to avoid. I feel like, but 
at yeah. least with before facing sonar now like you can realize if they're not going to commit right away and they're going to bring you're just going to bring back the boat to, to burn that thing back in don't even give them a chance that's, that's one thing that uh that a lot of people because you know i get guys all the time like how do you sit on one spot and catch so many fish on it and something that i've been doing for years now is i line up i get a lineup for one where a lot of times the fish have to come uphill when i catch them does that make sense so instead Mm -hmm. a lot of times if you're pulling a school they want to be pulled to deeper water right even if it's just a two to three foot difference, if you're sitting on that shallow and you're throwing over to those fish, a lot of times what will happen is I don't think they pull as far. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like they'll get to the edge of that. And once that fish goes over the lip, these fish don't want to follow that school anymore or that, that one fish that has the bait anymore. And they'll turn back around and they'll reset a lot faster. Another thing that I do is like my waypoints, you know, a lot of guys, they'll, they'll have a waypoint where the fish are. And they want to be sitting, you know, live scope as an example. They want to be 40 feet away or 50 feet away in order to see the fish on live scope and try to catch it. I'm always the complete opposite. I want to catch those fish on the end of my cast. So I'll be out on that flat. I'll, I'll figure out where those fish are. I'll line up to where I'm on the shallower water. I'm working uphill. And I want to bomb that thing as far as I can and then bring it to the fish. You know, the bite, I want the bite to happen in the first 10 feet or so and then i'll catch that fish bring it in and i don't think i pulled the school because I, I never see fish on my 2d i don't have live scope but the way i fish like i, I take guys back in there that got all the fancy electronics and got the live scope and they want to get right on top of the fish and we'll catch 10 fish out of the spot that i can catch 40 out of in my boat and a lot of times when i'm out there i turn my sonar off when i get on a school like that i turn it all off it's one of the first things i have about you I got my trolling motor on low or I got it spot locked way the heck away from the fish. And I'm just bombing casts into there and catching fish. I, I really think that like the, the live scope can be an Achilles heel when it comes to that particular thing, especially on pressured fish. When yeah. uh, you, you have to, like you have to see them to want to catch them or guys with 360. It's like, they want to get within, you know, 40 or 60 feet so they can see the fish on the 360. I'm like, we already know they're there. We don't have to see them. Just turn all that crap off. Let's spot lock up here, and well, let's just catch the dang fish, you know? <laughs> I love that. If you stop catching them, then you turn it back on, and you, you find them, you know? It's like it's, – I love that. I Dude, think it, the it's a really good key on some of that stuff. Yeah, that's a really good point because you hear a lot of guys saying, I can see fish on forward-facing swimming away from me. But you yeah. look at a lot of the stuff that they're looking at, and it's like 60, 70 feet. And in reality, yeah. that cast is so short that oh, it's God, a wonder yeah. that there's so many. It's almost more shocking that you're yeah. catching so many fish on live scope in that pan because it's it's not a big a big distance. It, it's really not. So there's you know there's there's something to be said still about fishing without forward facing, and the fact that I think that's super underrated and so simple yeah. to just just making a longer cast. So yeah. I think there's still something to be said about. Uh, you being able to look at your GPS and your waypoint and know how to set your boat up. And I think it was, I think it was Justin Lucas that we had on here where he says he always starts like 120 to 150 feet away. Now he yeah. used, he utilizes his live scope, yeah. but, he, but he will start way far away making as long casts as he possibly can. And I think it's Brian thrift that does the same thing yeah. because you'll pick off five, 10 more fish. And chances are you'll find that magic spot. Well, like you like you just mentioned, where you can make that long cast 
and you yeah. don't have to use yeah. the trolling motor. It's perfect. Yeah, live scope is not helping you catch that fish. It is going to help you catch that random 10-pounder that's sitting, you know, 30 feet off the school over here, though. Mm-hmm. You know, because you know how those fish do, especially on mud flats and stuff. It's like they're random. So you get 360 or, uh, you know, live scope out there and you're catching fish, but then you pan out and you see a rent or, you know, a rogue big one, you're liable to, you know, catch a bonus fish. So I think it's extremely useful, but I think that you should, you know, re- don't rely on it to begin with. Fit, don't let it change completely the way that you fish, especially on areas that are pressured. What I've noticed is if, if you fish the way that you always have, you go in there, side scan to me is still like the number one tool. Like you can't cover a quarter of what I cover, you know, idling with that live scope. You can't. And so if you're just on a big do nothing flat, the chances of you going through there on high on, on your live scope and not running over the fish when you finally find them is like way less than me just idling through there, seeing, 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 seeing. I got everything that's happening on that flat covered. I know what's happening. Boom. Then I'm back to fishing. Mm-hmm. So not to mention the live guys scope. are relying too much on on the live scope right now they're missing out it's like you should still be doing 90 percent of what you do with side scan and down scan find the okay. fish with that then put the trolling motor down once you get in the right area and go hunt the right fish i think that's what really guys like josh jones and milliken and stuff have gotten really good at because they know how to locate fish with their mm-hmm. other sonars first you locate them then you go back in there and you pinpoint the right kind of fish. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway. Well, to the point of the side scan too, and between live scope, whatever the unit is you're using, it's a forward facing sonar. If you're on a mud flat looking for shell and rock, you're never going to see it unless it's like a three foot tall boulder or yeah. a two foot tall bolt. It has to stand out you or a tree. play with the settings right. on there and you can make it look a little bit hotter and stuff, but it's still nothing like, and, and, and still like you're, like we're talking about, it is not, it's not easy to do. You're not covering water that way. You're, you're panning around and you're trying to see what you're seeing. And you're you seeing know? fish 50 to 60 feet ahead of you. And when you're panning, you're probably spooking them with all the noise anyways. Yeah. So yeah. you're it, just catching a glimpse and trying to chase a ghost. And yeah. That's where I've heard some guys talking about where they want to get a live scope transducer for when they're graphing and they're on their console to pan to the left and right. I'm like, isn't that what your, your side imaging is for? Cause they, they want to find yeah. suspended fish, but at that rate, I mean, you can see suspended fish on that. Go ahead and mark them all with your side scan. Look at everything you want to look at. Spend two hours behind that. And then spend two quality hours with your live scope going back over those spots where you already know fish. You need to know, you need to understand your side scan. You need to understand settings based on the water clarity, what's the current, you know, all that kind of thing. You need to understand that. But you really need to learn, take the time to take the, the side scan to places where you know fish are. Look at them on there, turn around and catch them. And that way you know exactly what size a fish is that you're seeing on your side stand. Because I can go through schools and it blows people's mind when they're in the boat. Like I can run through a school and I'll be like, oh, those are all two pounders, whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we'll pull through another school and I'll be like, dude, there's some big ones in there. This is worth marking. Boom, 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 boom. And you yeah. start running through and then all of a sudden you spent two or three, maybe even four hours behind that side scan there. 
And now you've got 20 schools that have the right kind of potential size class fish. And then you turn around and you go back through. And at that point, I would pull out my live scope and still do the same thing. I would ease up to that waypoint. Think about, you know, that's the thing. Like one of the most important aspects on there is your GPS map. Because you can look at that and look at the wind, look at the current, and choose an approach to that waypoint there. You want to be pushing into that thing to where you're not going to get blown over top of it. The current's not going to wash you over top of it. You want to have the right approach to where you can bring that bait uphill or you can basically catty corner yourself in a way that you're not pulling the school and then make that long cast. And if you don't catch a fish on your first 20 casts with what you know is the right bait, well, then it's time to kind of ease up with that live scope and pan around to see if they're still there. Maybe they move just a touch or something, but you know, it's like, just use it as a tool. It's a great tool. Mm-hmm. It is something important to have. And I definitely want to have it on my boat, but you need to learn all the other stuff really well first. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I, you know, we, I get high schoolers and college kids and stuff that, you know, they're, that's all they can talk about. And that's what they want is the live scope, but they haven't taken the time to learn the other sonar first. You know what I mean? Cause that's really the, the main thing. Yeah. I'm there with you. Yeah, for for guys, you know, you're watching. Uh, there's this misconception, I think, uh, that YouTube has, because YouTube is a condensed form of content. So, like, a guy goes out and fishes for 12 hours, but you're only seeing 25 minutes of that day. Yeah. You're not seeing what's actually going into that day. Like, where guys are seeing guys that are insanely good with forward facing sonar, and they go and buy it and expect that they're going to be doing the exact same thing yeah. as these guys. Yeah. And they're just putting the trolling motor down and using it. Whereas these guys that are so good with forward-facing sonar are spending 20% of their time using that for, on the trolling motor and spending yeah. the rest of the 80% graphing, mm-hmm. staring yeah. at the screen on the console. Because it's, it's all about areas. Another thing is, like, if you're doing the live scope thing, especially on our lakes here and cold water especially – I cannot tell you how many times, and so here's another funny example. That same day that we're talking about, you know, last month or the month before when that storm came in and I caught all those fish, what keep me into those fish, I, I'm literally fishing a big spring along a bank right there. And I caught quite a few fish that day, you know, like 15 fish or so in this creek. But one thing I was always doing instead of looking at my graph or anything, it's like I get there to that spring and I start looking out onto that flat. I'm just looking because the the water was flat enough before that storm came in. I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking. When I'm scanning out there, I'm looking because all it takes in the wintertime is for one fish to roll. It might be a gizzard shad, it might be a crappie, but I'm talking like the you'll see a massive flight and you'll see one little tiny break on the water. And I can't tell you how many times I've gone over there and just sat in the same spot and caught a hundred fish because every fish in that area is ultra cold and it's a cold front. But if you see some top water activity, especially on a big flat, you know, expansive area like that, you better get your butt over there because it can be lights out, you know? And that's the thing. If you're sitting there staring at a live scope running that Creek channel, you're never going to see that. Right. It's like you have to have your head on a swivel. And so that's that's the big thing with the live scope that I'm trying to to figure out because it's even hard when I'm side scanning because when I'm side scanning, I'm constantly looking up too, and I'm back down and because of the scroll speed, it gives me enough time to 
keep up with what's going on <laughs> while I'm still looking for activity, looking for birds, looking for any signs to where I know I can run over that area and then side scan it. So with the live scope, there's so many guys I see just glued to a screen. Like I wonder how many times a fish busts over there that they didn't see that was like the spot because they're doing this, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's very visual, but also the Achilles heel of every yeah. angler if they use it improperly. Yeah. And it's hurt me on a couple of fishing trips and other people's boats. I had to literally like, you know, stop looking at it until I got everything set up where I wanted, you know, find the fish first and then pull that thing out and try to see mm -hmm. if it'll help. But if you're just sitting there glued to the screen, I just feel like you don't really cover as much water or see as many fish as you think you do. If you just right. fish traditional and then you use it after you do that, because then you know you're around the fish yeah. when you put that thing down instead of just scanning I could see myself for like two hours just, you know, panning around. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I didn't mean to get on a live scope tangent here. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's like something we could talk about for days on end. Yeah. Um, but I have one quick question here from YouTube Kaz in the comments. Um, and he asked, let's see. He said, the water temperature is rising from 55 <laughs> to 61 degrees in this last rainstorm I had. Um, it was a cold, it was cold for the day. Does this change the fish behavior dramatically or only for a short period of time? I personally hate it when water temps jump six degrees in like a day and a half. I feel like it messes them up for longer than a couple days, especially yeah. if it, if it stays stable and warm, it will get better after a couple days. But if it, jumps really quick and then gets cold again it just messes them up like i'd almost rather stay home personally because yeah. it's so hard to get them to bite yeah that's in my situation that's when i run the current you know because i know that water pumping out from a dam is going to be stable um it's i'm it's, curious it's about interesting that thing like it really is in terms of this time of year for me that big of a temperature swing is scaring to me is scary to me because especially when those fish are in transition, they can be so vulnerable to move forward or backward. Yeah. And especially now that these fish are doing like Caleb, you said you, know, you lived on Chickamauga and you've never seen the fish doing what they're doing now. That means fish are like it almost seems like in the past few years, fish are starting to evolve and you hear this trend of people saying they're starting to do things they've never seen before. Yeah. So it's, it's yeah. almost kind of scary, especially when fish are in transition periods, when that there's that big of a temperature shift because you don't know which way they're going to go. You can get a good guess, but I think they're more vulnerable to move. So for me, the way I think about things, every lake is different, right? Whether you're on a highland reservoir, you're on a river system, you're on a great lake. Watercolor has a lot to do with it. Watercolor has a lot to do with it, um, but... That's the thing. On, on every lake I've ever been on, there's a population of fish that's main lake. There's a population of fish that are in creeks. There's a population of fish that like to stay deeper. There's a population of fish that like to stay shallower. So what I tend to do when there's a big temperature change, whether it is warm or cold, and sometimes the warm, you know, depending on the lake, will make the fish flood up shallow. But a lot of times if you get up there and it's not happening, the first thing I'm going to do is go to find fish deep. Um, and deep is relative. You know, for me in the wintertime, deep around here is, you know, 
10 to 12, or it might be 15 to 18, right? Um, deep on another lake, if I went up to Parksville Lake and was fishing spotted bass, I would look for fish that are, you know, suspended out 40 to 50 foot deep on bait, right? They're over 100 foot of water mm-hmm. because it, the deeper a fish is, the less it's affected by those, you know, water fluctuations. Yeah. Huge changes up at the top there. So that's what I'll try to do. I, I'll either, in my case, most of the time I'm running to find current because it's going to be stable water. If I don't have the option to do current, I'm going to go deep and I'm probably going to go main lake uh, because there's going to be fish there. I mean, there's a lot of the fish are going to stay out main lake. A lot of fish spawn main lake. Everybody thinks that fish just like every fish in the lake is, lives out there in the wintertime and then they all flood back into the creeks and spawn. That's not how it works. No. <laughs> and a lot of times, too, and this might be something that a lot of people don't realize, is that when the water's cold, a lot of times the biggest fish in the lake stay shallow. Yeah. Because they're looking to eat. <laughs> 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 okay, I'll, tell you too, I'll tell you another thing that, you know, talking about thinking outside the box, when it's the water is extremely, extremely hot <laughs> in the summertime, some of the biggest fish in the lake will stay shallow. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Residential fish. They, they're big for a reason. Yep. I'm going to take Bailey to go see some of those big girls when he comes back into town over here. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> don't, don't tempt me with a good time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the thing. It's like there is a some of the biggest fish in the lake. I, I really think in most cases the biggest fish in the lake actually stay relatively shallow all year round. I think it's a comfort thing. Really. I think, you know, if you're, if you're a grandma, you're not going to be wanting to fight those pressure changes, right. To be sliding from really shallow water, to really deep water, living down in 40 feet. That's why ledge fishing around here in the summertime, you don't see a whole lot of guys catch 10 pounders or 12 pounders and never teeners off of ledges in 30 foot of water. Right. Yeah the ones that you see are usually caught at night in the summertime and they're on shallow grass edges. They're still close to the channel. They still get that current. They get that stable water, but they stay shallow. The right. biggest fish in the lakes uh, go into major creeks. They go all the way in the back of the creeks. They get in that cool water back there. Your biggest uh, striper too on the Tennessee river. Everybody wonders what happens to the striper in the summertime. They go miles up creeks into where it's just trout fishing stream. Mm-hmm. You'll have 30 and 40 pound stripers swimming around up there and gizzard chad and nine to 10 pound bass swimming everywhere. It's, it's, it's unreal. It's like, um, I mean, in deer terms, right? The, yeah. the older a deer gets, the less amount of area that it covers. The range shrinks. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So like Andy has been on this kick lately of talking about Polynex triangle of yeah. finding fish. Amazing. Their triangle shrinks as they get older. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it can almost it's be, it's very patternable, but it's yeah. it's one thing you notice if you find a, a big fish deep, especially if they're suspended as well. One thing you can almost guarantee is that there's they are very close to some sort of shallow flat, shallow cover. It's a lot of times they're the same depth as that. Even if they slid out over the deep water, have you ever noticed like <laughs> there's that, still there's two that tree, that stump that they live on year round, they're suspended. 12 foot deep, 30 foot from that. 
Um, and that's why, like, you know, we talk about, like, the Cali guys, you know, old heads, big swim baits, teener size fish. Um, anybody that fishes for giant fish, what's one thing that they all say? The biggest fish in the lake lives on the most obvious stuff. That that beautiful hump out there that's the most prominent point on that lake, that's where the big fish lives. Mm-hmm. They're territorial, but I think they're territorial just because it's a comfort thing. Like they want to live their life in that area. It's like, this is where the most bait is. This is the best piece of structure on that area. That's the spot within the spot. That's where your 10 pounder, that's where your 13 pounder, that's where your 18 pounder lives. It's just a matter of, can you fool that fish at that point? And so that's why I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've fished different, like there's, there's certain stumps on the ends of points, on the ends of humps, uh, rock piles, different things that I've gone 20, 30 times to fish the same piece of structure, lining up on it different ways every time, sneaking up with different approaches, throwing big swim baits, throwing finesse baits, um, all kinds of different things. And I can't tell you how many times it's actually paid off to where I fish the same thing multiple trips, day after day after day after day, because I know that fish is there. And then I catch a trophy sized fish off of that thing. And in my mind, she's always been there. It was just yeah. that day. I picked the right day. I picked the right line. I picked the right bait. Yeah. Have confidence when you find what you know is the spot. I don't care if you fished it 30 times. Take your butt back there. How, I don't care how discouraged you are. Take your butt back there and be thinking about it every time. Line up. Change things up. Change your bait. Change your lineup. Change everything that you do if you're not getting bit on that spot because that fish is there. And usually in one. Yeah. The crazier thing too is how many times have you rotated like that spot throughout a day? And like the first five times you don't get sniffed and all of a sudden the sixth time you catch one, then you leave and you come back two more times. And the second time you come back, you catch two. Yeah. And you're just like, what's that? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, the right fish, you know, that's the thing. There's, there's always those beautiful things. I get on a new lake and that's the first thing I do map study wise is I, I mark, mark out all the things, you know, it's, it could be a 500 acre lake, but I mark out all the areas where that fish is going to sit. And there's probably a big one or two on each one of those. And so then I'm doing game plan. I do this all pre-planned as well. Like I'm looking at my map, I'm looking at my contours and everything. I start planning approaches. So I got a point for where I think the fish will be. And I've got a point for where I think the approach will be. I'll go and fish it the way I think it's going to work. If I don't get bit, I'll idle that thing on this new lake. And I'll look for the spot on the spot. That's like, to me, it's like the most key thing. It's like, if you're catching fish on this point, if you're catching fish on this hump, if you're catching fish on this part of a flat, when you're done catching them, idle that thing because there's one thing on there that's special. You know, there's there's a little dip on that little part of that hard spot. There's an extra big rock sitting there. There's a stump. There's a little cluster of stumps. There's a lay down. There's something else there that's different. A lot of times it's just outside of where that main school is that's where your big, big fish is going to sit. So it's like every time I find a good spot, I'm looking for the spot, like where I can go and potentially catch the biggest fish that lives in that area. It's just like deer hunting. I mean, it it is a hunt that you have to go on if you want to chase trophy fish. Mm -hmm. Completely different thought process too. 
Mm-hmm. So to kind of start wrapping up the show a little bit here, talking about like bringing it full circle back to a cold front, the day completely after that cold front, yeah. you launched that boat. What is your strategy? I mean, you're probably, I'm going to assume you're going to go to similar areas where you just caught them the day prior or yeah. you know they were the day prior. Well, I'm going to do exactly what we just talked about because what I've noticed, so the day after a cold front, the, really the two days after sometimes are the toughest days, but I can't tell you how many times I've gone, you know, I maybe that day as the cold front was coming in, I caught 50 fish. It was great. Well, those next two days, I might only catch three or four fish, but you're liable to get the biggest bite that you had that whole year. It's something about that post front bluebird skies wind still whipping out of the west or the north that gets really big fish to eat. And I don't know really what it is, but as soon as I get out there, that's my mindset. I'm a hundred percent because I know I'm not going to get many bites. So what am I going to do? I'm going to chase a trophy fish. I'm going to get out there for me. I'm going to throw a big bait. A lot of times there's something about that. And it's worked for me so many times picking up an eight or 10 inch bait in that really tough time after the cold front there. And then the other thing that I'll do is I'll go really, really small. I've caught huge fish on little things like like a fluke, like a four-inch fluke junior on a on a ball head. You know, in those same places I was catching them on a trap the day before, but there's like that cast. I'll throw it out there. That tube catches <laughs> giant fish that day after. Something slow on the bottom. And then the other thing that's ultra powerful is a jerk bait and then a big swim bait. And then my all-time favorite, the float and fly. Go out there. <laughs> come up somewhere. <laughs> Dude, bobber fish. Go out two, there. Two power, one tiny finesse. Yeah, literally. So you'll Love see, it. like, I've got a Dobbins 806 over there with a Depths 250 on it. And then right next to it is a little tiny spin rod with five-pound test with a float and fly. I and I am just as confident that either one will catch me a 10-pounder that day. Like the exact amount of confidence. I have found in New York that one of my best baits to throw when the wind is howling, like the day after a major cold front, the bright blue skies, is just your standard double willow white spinner bait with silver and gold blades. Again, that's the same thing that we do. Another thing is we throw a rig that day Mm -hmm. after that. So one thing that I'll do is I will, that's when I go with that really big gaudy rig. I'll go with a harvester rig, you know, seven wires, eight wires, five inch swim baits instead of, you know, four or three and a half inch swim baits. You know, my teasers will be four and my swim baits will be five inch swim baits. Um, You're going for that big bite. You're fishing lures that will get you a big bite. There's something special about something that you can keep in that fish's face. Just remember that. A glide bait, it suspends, slow sinks. You can keep it in that fish's zone because remember that bite window is shrinking. Mm-hmm. So you want to keep something in there. If you want to catch a really giant fish, floating fly is great because you pick the depth on that bobber stop. You throw that thing out there and you're putting that little bite sized portion right in front of that fish's face. This guy over here is throwing that 2.8 Kitek through there and he's, you know, moving it through that fish's zone. I can take that. I know right where that spot is on the spot. I'm going to fire that thing in there and I'm going to leave it into her zone until she just gets uncomfortable and has to eat it. It's going to be bumping into her mouth until she has to eat that thing. Jerk baits the same way. 
that's those are those days that you make the cast because you've done your homework. You know where the big fish should be sitting. You make that cast over there and you work that jerk bait in that zone, You're popping it on slight line and that thing's just moving in the same area, right? Mm-hmm. With, like you do in the summertime with a spook. It's like you're you're leaving it in that fish's zone too long. Mm. Take advantage of that really big fish being territorial and know that she's going to bite in those worst conditions right after the, the cold front. So that's the day that you go, all the homework that you did in days and days and days past, this is when it's going to pay off because you have 40 spots that you can go to and make one cast. Mm-hmm. one cast you know right where that cast is going to be you're going to cycle through those baits and you're going to get her to bite unless you have a kayak then you're only hitting five spots <laughs> hey but you're hitting five spots five that's to right. ten spots right yeah that's right where you know that fish that you want to catch is sitting on and you know the one cast that's going to work so yep. you can put something in her zone and make her eat it and it could be dragging stuff, you know, if the water's dirtier. Like for me, that tube, a jig, a grub, something that I can leave in there and leave in her zone is, is still super important. I even do it in dirty water. I'll do it with a trap. That's one of my all-time favorites is doing that. what we were talking about before, flopping a trap, flopping a spoon. You know, you can take – a lot of guys don't think you can fish a flutter spoon during a cold front or during the winter time. You can throw that thing out there. There's no law that says you have to rip a flutter spin. Mm-hmm. Throw it out there, get it to bottom, because you know the bait's five or six inches, right? Throw mm-hmm. a five or six inch flutter spin, get it down to bottom and flop it back and forth. Just leave it in their zone. Find out exactly where that zone is, get in there, leave it in there, and make the fish bite. Because then you can fish. If you only have 40 spots to fish, you can fish as slow as you want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? You're going, you're running over here. You get everything perfect. You sneak in, you get your line up. You fire that bait in there. That doesn't work. I'll usually start out with my big bait. Doesn't work. Fire a rig in there. Doesn't work. Fire a jerk bait in there. Doesn't work. Fire a floating fly in there. Doesn't work. Drag the bottom a couple times. Okay, she's not there. Boom. And I might rotate. You know, if I was a kayak guy and I only had 10 spots, I would rotate those back and forth because that fish, you know how they are it's a big fish. It's going to stay in that general area, but she might be suspended off to the side. She right. might just pull in to be comfortable on that area later in the day. It might be an afternoon deal. So you can take those 10 spots and just keep rotating. If you get bored, you can fish for the schools of fish that you found with your homework prior and then go back to rotating. That's a good point. But just, you know, if it's going to be tough out there anyway, those are prime conditions to catch the biggest fish of your life. It's like mm-hmm. fish for the biggest fish of your life. Yeah. Might as well just, yeah, exactly. Exactly what you just said. You're not going to catch a lot of fish. You might yeah. as well, if you're going to go, yeah. go big. It seems like, and that's the thing, like anybody around, at least around us, anybody will tell you those terrible days is like the days that the really big fish get caught a lot of times. Oh, yeah. Like that, that second day right after the first day right after. Those are the days that the, the monsters get caught. <laughs> I love this comment right here from Timothy. He says, get this guy a bucket for all this juice. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Amazing. I get I love it, dude. I get so passionate about that part of it. I know. Dude, so we, get the, we get the best comments when we get you on the show, dude, because you, you drop the juice every time. Every uh, time, not a tournament guy. I don't care. <laughs> That's right. He's just like, do your thing. 
take it. <laughs> like, but if you see my John boat, say hi and then leave. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they don't even know. That's the thing. It just looks like I'm out there crappie fishing. I'm I'm sneaky, man. <laughs> Love it. Gotta go low key. Gotta go and he's low got key. so many rods on that John boat. They're all sticking off the sides. Looks like he's yeah. spider webbing. Down. Exactly. Exactly. That's the only thing I'm liking. I need to kind of get everything where I can tone it down. Have a false bobber rig on the back, you know, just yeah. like, <laughs> one of you know, one of those, you know, the things that they stick in there for spider rigging for yeah. all the rods. Yeah. I need one of those just sitting in the back, so it looks like I'm spider rigging crappie or something trolling. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh man, well, dude, seriously, again, thank you for, thank for you. joining in tonight. That's oh, it's always good conversation when we get you on here, um, dude. What's what's I know obviously that the fish is about to really pick up where yeah. you're at if it hasn't already. It. Uh, what's uh, what's on the horizon for you? you? Have any trips planned? You going north again at all this year? Going north, booked the trip, got the flight booked for uh, middle of May, going up to Michigan. Super excited! I think this time we're actually we're going Upper Peninsula and then pulling into Canada. Oh so, man, okay. Ultra stoked about that. Uh, I've got uh, another trip planned down. You know, planning on going down fishing Mikey down in Alabama and stuff. I don't think I'm going to run into Florida this year, but just anything like that. I've got a few other kind of, uh, I've got some really like hitless lakes around here that are really small. Can't get a uh, full size bass boat into that I've been hearing about and about three hour drive for me. So we got some sneaky stuff coming up. Definitely looking forward to getting off really pressured water and, and then, uh, night fishing this year, early night fishing is like one of my main goals is getting out here, like really from March on, and doing the springtime night fishing deal because I think it's going to kick off and be like the way to catch that 13 pound bass on Chickamauga. I think that's the way to do it. Heck yeah, dude. Well, I'm Go looking get forward it done. To, yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing yeah. that happen. And uh, buddy, I'm looking forward to seeing you when I get down that way. And yes. Yeah. But uh, we decided dude, to run up to the classic. I might see you there. I don't know. My my wife and I have been debating on back and forth because uh, Ben's going to be there and Alex and you guys are going to be there. So we might yeah. we might make the drive. It's only like three hours, three and a half hours from us. So yeah, holler at us, dude. I'll introduce you to Andy in, in person. And heck yeah, <laughs> it should be good. I texted Ben the other day and asked if he was going, and he said he's going to be covering uh, um, Nick LeBrun's, uh practice, I believe, on Wednesday. So yeah so it's gonna be good to get ben and i mean i think with ben and alex down there you you have to come it just wouldn't be right if you didn't i know we got to get the squad together that's we right over there and just be like we got sasquatch we got the puerto rican redneck yeah. crazy <laughs> kid, the cali kid from new york we got we got everything oh Michigan master <laughs> perfect <laughs> Well, dude, I always appreciate every time I get to, to chat with you and get you on the show. And uh, you'll have to let us know if you're coming this week because it'd be good to see you. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, boys, we're gonna we're gonna wrap the show up here tonight. <laughs> appreciate everybody that joined in, and we'll see you guys. Oh, we will not have a show uh, on Friday. We're gonna be at the Classic, so we will see you guys next week for Tuesday Night Live. Caleb, thanks again, buddy. Thank you. Later, boys. Catch them big. Well, that was an awesome show. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If you can and your app allows it, please leave us a rating and review. It really helps us get seen more, which allows us to access more time and more variables to be able to bring to the show to make it better for you guys. 
So hope you enjoyed it. And if you did and you liked some of the things we talked about in this episode and want to check out our show partners, all of that is in every single show description. You can click down there. It's got all of our discount codes, all of our links to our show partners where you guys can go and support the people that support this show and help us make this show happen. And of course, this show does not happen without you guys. You guys know we appreciate you. You're the Sears Sanger fam. You're the reason we're here. Appreciate y'all, and we'll see y'all on the next one.